Hello and welcome to Irreligiosophy 2.0, the second coming of the One True Podcast. I'm your host, Chuck, and I brought with me today, Matt Wakefield. Hello, Chuck. I'd like to take a minute to thank John Gray Vogel, a.k.a. Merkbox, for the modified theme uh, at the introduction there. I'm not sure how he convinced Stephen Hawking to do the irreligiosity voiceovers, but uh, thanks for that, John. Since we're uh, relaunching this new incarnation of irreligiosity, uh, immaculately conceived by Matt and I, I'd like to discuss why. I think it boils down to arming atheists, uh, the good guys, the guys who don't have goatees and mustaches, with reasoned arguments uh, to fight the culture war against the religious idiots who still think it's appropriate to staff a uh, women's health care panel uh, entirely by men, uh, who still threaten the, the teaching of evolution in schools, um, same people who want to turn back the clock on abortion rights and gay rights. I mean, our Constitution is hanging by a thread, and uh, irreligiosities coming like a white horse to save it. All right, Matt, since we've uh, risen like a phoenix from the ashes, our first episode of the new One True Podcast, Irreligiosity 2.0, I want to take a minute to introduce, once again, our co-host, Matt Wakefield. Hey, thanks for having me here. Who you might remember from such episodes as Ken Hovind's Doctoral Thesis and What is Truth? And also, What is Truth 2? What... <laughs> You might not recall the episode uh, where we actually interviewed Matt, one of our first episodes early on, uh, and it was uh, unfortunately destroyed on my computer. Yes. How did that happen exactly? Well, you know, we recorded the entire episode, and I went to edit it, and I f noticed that it was a four-kilobyte file. <laughs> so, I don't that's know. About, that's about all you need on me. <laughs> I don't know if it was uh, my screw-up or the program screw-up. Uh, it just corrupted. I have no idea. Maybe I just never recorded it. Who knows? Four kilobytes is enough to get. Hello, my name is Matt Wakefield. <laughs> so, in lieu of that hour-long podcast, why don't you take 30 seconds to introduce yourself to our uh, four or five listeners? Okay, all four of you. Perhaps five. Uh, my name is Matt Wakefield. I was once a born-again Christian in high school. And uh, probably a source of irritation to many around me. I know this. Uh, I know this myself. I knew yeah. Matt in high school. You were a senior in high school. I think I was a freshman. Matt listened to uh, Striper as a uh, uh, high school senior. One of the greatest heavy metal bands ever. <laughs> <laughs> I have so much latent guilt about Striper because I remember I had a friend who listened to like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, and I would just say things to him like. Oh, why you gotta listen to those groups? Why don't you listen to some good rock and roll, like Straper oh, or Petra? <laughs> <laughs> uh, wasn't one of their songs "To Hell with the Devil"? <laughs> to Hell with the Devil. <laughs> yes. See, do you get it? You get it, Chuck? They're saying, like, get it? No, please, please explain it to me. <laughs> I never fully got it. <laughs> Striper, that is impressive. Um, what led to your downfall, Matt? What? Uh, how, how did you convert from a, a born again evangelical Christian trying to uh, uh, destroy everyone's taste in music to the atheist you are today? Chuck, um, it turns out that Glenn Beck 
is right. It's those liberal college professors and education. Those are the priesthood of atheism. That's right. Uh, it turns out when I got to college that I could not, and I did not have to go to church anymore, like when I lived at home, that I did not want to go to church anymore. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. But also the study of anthropology and some philosophy classes and comparative religion. And so you for you, thinking, for and you, it's all over. It was um, much um, much like Leighton, I guess. It was the uh, seeing all the different religions, seeing Christianity in um, in context. In, yeah, yeah, in context. When you when you grow up in when you grow up in certain places, and you just go through you're you're through one lens, you know, of life, and all you know is like there's the church on the corner, and you know here's my school, and that's it. And then you get exposed to a little bit more out there. You either I don't know what you do. You either have to compartmentalize it or you have to you have to start thinking. You have to open up a little bit. So your degree was in anthropology, is that right? Anthropology with a focus on mythology. Well, uh, thank the good Lord that I caught you in between digs. <laughs> yes. So neither of us actually did anything remotely near our field of, of study in college. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Still goes to show, you know, education is useful for at least making some of your life miserable. So you can get employed despite a degree in anthropology. That's right. And you guys, even before, in the earlier uh, primal form of this podcast, you 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 uh, interviewed one, uh, I'm going to mangle this, Eva Vasiluska. Vasileska. Vasileska. <laughs> who's a professor of mine. You actually took a class from Eva? I took two. Two classes from Eva. That's fantastic. And look at me now. I got a job and everything. <laughs> Despite Eva's uh, instruction. That's right. fantastic. Now, I do recall one um, thing from that podcast. It was an interesting story. You, you kind of uh, slowly faded away from Christianity, but there was one event that was the turning point for you. Uh... You were in church. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah were, I, was, I was thinking uh, of something else. Um, yeah, they were doing some sort of uh, healing, or you're, you're getting the Holy Spirit or something like that. Uh, tell me about that. That's right. That was a, a group of us came down to uh, the big city, Salt Lake City, and attended a – it was basically a revival type, um, whatever you call those things, you know. So this was in Salt Lake. How old were you at the time? I was 17, 16, probably 17 at the time. And, um, you know, it's a big, big stadium full of tons of people. They're playing music. You know, there's rivals or big shows. Um, they have a hugely charismatic preacher up on stage and they start doing the, uh, like, I want everyone to, you know, come down here and, and, and we're going to smack you on the forehead and you're going to speak in tongues. He didn't say that, but that's essentially what started happening. And I'm in line following everybody down to this guy and he's he's putting his forehead and he's got a you know he's got a microphone he's he's saying it to everybody just like the lord is in you and he'd smack him on the forehead and they people would catch him they collapse and they'd like they'd lay him on the ground they'd be like twitching and speaking in tongues and and i started freaking out i was just like oh my god like he's gonna smack me on the forehead and i'm gonna just stand there so you're in line to get smacked on the forehead i'm in line and I get right up to the front, and he's like, come here, brother. And I'm like, hi, and just walked right around him. You dodged <laughs> the smack? 
I dodged the smack. <laughs> through the, the, the speaking tongues and jiggling, you know, bodies of the afflicted or, and made my way back up to the back of the stadium and just that's sat there. Awesome. And, and that's, that was probably the, the seminal moment. Like the, yeah, the one moment in time where I was like, this might be bullshit, you know. But this happened when you were a senior in high school and you continued to listen to Striper. <laughs> Don't remind me. <laughs> I had to come off that for a while. It took I had to go through Winger and Warrant. And- I got you. There was a there was a weaning process, a tapering process. All right. Uh really uh the song Cherry Pie will get you through that. <laughs> All right. Um <laughs> moving on. What our episode today is Inside the Empty Tomb. We're striking Matt at the crux of Christianity today. The fundamental claim of Christianity. Is the empty tomb? Well, the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, okay. William Lane Craig, for example, gives ten lines of evidence for this empty tomb. I want you to keep this in mind while we're talking about uh, the scenario. Okay, ten lines. Ten lines of evidence. Uh... Number one, so this is so important to them, Matt, because if there was no empty tomb, then Jesus was not resurrected, right? So it's very important for them that the empty tomb claim, A, is very early, and B, is true. If it doesn't happen, Christianity falls by the wayside. Oh, so this is like the creationist argument against evolution. All we need to do is prove prove one thing wrong, and the whole edifice crumbles. Right, the whole point is that there's no natural explanation for the empty tomb. It's a, you're left with only a supernatural explanation. Okay. All right. Uh, so number one, William Lane Craig's ten lines of evidence. This is like the uh, Kalam cosmological argument for me, Matt. It drives me crazy every time I listen to a debate with <laughs> William Lane Craig. It's so fucking stupid. Number one, the historical credibility of the burial story supports the empty tomb. Number two. Paul's testimony implies the historicity of the empty tomb. I love this because he says it implies the historicity. Um, because Good enough Paul, for me. <laughs> Paul is our earliest source, so he's got to say something about it. But Paul never explicitly says there was an empty tomb. All he says about the whole thing is that, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians fifteen three to 4 For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Done. So that's that. That's <laughs> that's what Paul has to say. Um, I don't know. Buried. That may support it. Uh, uh, buried in a tomb. Um, I don't know what the context. First century Judea. Usually, I think they put them in a little uh, family tomb, and then um, when their flesh rots away, they put them in a little box. But uh, I don't know. Maybe that just means buried under the ground. You know, who knows? Well. If there's one thing I learned from creationists is that you don't have to have like actual evidence. You don't have to have uh, what do they call it? Uh, observational evidence, historical evidence. <laughs> implications are good enough. Right. That's that's all they have. They love to uh, hammer on about that we only have historical evidence for the Big Bang or et cetera, et cetera, right. uh, or evolution, for example. Um, for conveniently forgetting that they only have historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and evidence I put in quotes. <laughs> so um, Paul really uh, uh, offers very little if, if, if any support for the empty tomb so really Mark has the first account of the empty tomb Matthew only adds minor alterations I think Luke uh, edits in several places 
Um, Mark has a young man that, you know, actually in Mark, you have no resurrection appearance. You just have uh, a young man sitting in the tomb telling them, get out of here, Jesus isn't here. In uh, Luke, the young man in Mark becomes two men in shining garments. What? (laughs) Like sequins or lightstones? Probably magically shining garments. Oh, uh, in Matthew, I think that the young man has become this this magical angel who rolls away the stone and descends from heaven. John, which may be independent, or he might not be from the synoptics, I, I think probably it's it's too late not to be influenced by the synoptics. So we're really back to Mark having the only first, uh, the, having the first and only story of the empty tomb, uh, and really not Paul. Anyway, uh, number three for William Lane Craig, the presence of the empty tomb story in the pre-Markin Passion account supports its historicity. So he's claiming here that Mark was based on a pre-Markin Passion story. And uh, uh, the empty tomb, of course, was in that pre-Markin Passion story. I don't know how. This is a totally theoretical account here. So I don't know how he places the empty tomb in a hypothetical Source. Remind me what the passion stories are again. Passion story is Jesus's crucifixion, suffering. Oh, okay. Not not uh, not like a a kind of a ancient um, morality play, but a, a romance. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the passion is is Jesus's suffering, essentially. Oh, like Passion of the Christ. Yes. Uh, number four: the use of on the first day of the week, instead of on the third day, points to the primitiveness of the tradition. So apparently on the third day was a uh, later Christian invention, and uh, the earliest sources used on the first day of the week. So that means it's more primitive. And that makes it more true? And if, Yeah, well, that's one of the things. The earlier the source, the less theologically adorned and less likely uh, stuff has crept in. But even the earliest source that we have, Paul, is 20 years after the crucifixion. So I'm not sure that that gets you very far. Uh, number five, again, the, the narrative is theologically unadorned and non-apologetic. I don't know how you say that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's more factual, more yeah, more reporter-like. Yeah, Mark's account that... The young man says that Jesus up and walked out of the tomb uh, apparently is theologically unadorned. I mean, fuck you, Craig. It's, it's unbiased uh, journalism. Non-apologetic, right. Uh, number six, the discovery of the tomb by women is highly probable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> number seven, the investigation of the empty tomb by Peter and John is historically probable. Uh, number eight, it would have been impossible for the disciples to proclaim the resurrection in Jerusalem had the tomb not been empty. Not just improbable, impossible. Impossible. Number nine, Jewish polemic presupposes the empty tomb. That means the counterarguments, the earliest counterarguments uh, from the Jews that we have in Matthew, for example, uh, argue against the empty tomb, so they obviously presuppose it. Uh, number ten, Jesus' tomb was not venerated as a shrine. And uh, his his argument there is that if uh, the tomb was full of Jesus's bones, it would have become a shrine for Christians. Well, that makes sense. I, yeah, my 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 response to that is: don't you think if they knew where the fuck the tomb was, it would have been venerated either way? I mean, I, whether Jesus was entombed there or not, wouldn't it yeah, be maybe. more likely to be venerated if it 
if he wasn't there? Because if he was, that would mean that Christianity was false. <laughs> we don't venerate spots, Chuck. These are you people. Exactly. Just Jesus' bones. So out of his first 10 lines of evidence, he's got an implication and a couple of probables and an impossible. Yes, impossible. That one's good. Like but five he- of those are just kind of... <laughs> meh. He claims that none of these arguments by themselves lead to the conclusion that the empty tomb story was historical. But all of them together present a powerful argument that the empty tomb is the most likely explanation for the facts. I wish you had told me that before I made fun of him. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue that the, um, the job of the historian is to establish what most probably happened. So I agree with him there. What we're trying to do is line up lines of evidence that, that tell us what... what uh, Probably, what was the most likely outcome from the evidence? Most likely interpretation. And his problem, as Hume explains, is that any naturalistic explanation, no matter how wildly improbable, is always more probable than a miracle. If you if you take into account that uh, no one has ever observed <laughs> anyone <laughs> rising from the dead, and then it, it, it requires a miracle for that to happen, for a body to lie dead for three days and then get up and walk away. That's the definition of a miracle. Sure. So any naturalistic explanation, whether, you know, even w- without all this stuff, uh, any naturalistic uh, explanation, such as the disciples went in, rolled the stone away, uh, stole the body away, uh, Jesus uh, was not dead, but only uh, knocked out for a little while and taken down from the cross and then got up and healed. Any naturalistic explanation, always more probable than a miracle. Uh, because we have evidence for naturalistic explanations. People do steal bodies. People do heal. <laughs> it's always more probable than, than breaking the laws of physics. Uh, so since every event we've studied thoroughly has had a natural explanation, we should feel confident that every event we haven't been able to study thoroughly uh, will have a, a natural explanation too. I'd say that's true. Although I'm going to go out on a limb here, Chuck. I'm going to say the second law of thermodynamics will prohibit somebody from rising from the grave. Son of a bitch. I bet he didn't think of that. (laughs) (laughs) Because a resurrected state is a lot more orderly than a non-resurrected state. All they needed to do actually was plug Jesus' body into an electrical outlet. Oh, they could have used one of those uh, old-style Egyptian battery jars. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... Craig's argument requires that Jesus first be buried in a tomb before it is claimed that that tomb later became empty. So after Jesus was crucified, his body would end up in one of three possible fates. Number one is no burial. So often, uh, and most of, the, most of the time, Romans would leave crucified victims up on the cross as uh, deterrents to people walking by. And they'd, um, their value as deterrent is only uh, as long as they're up there on the cross, right? So yeah. they They'd, left, they'd leave the bodies, typically, for crows or, or vultures to swing over there and eat them. Uh, and they'd, they'd use that deterrent as long as possible. That would deter the shit out of me. So that is, that's the most typical fate of a crucified victim. Number two is dishonorable burial in a public graveyard of the condemned. And number three is honorable burial in a privately owned tomb. So, <laughs> you know what happened to Jesus according to the Gospels, right? He was honorably buried in a privately owned tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. It seems to me, of those three, that last one is least probable. Well, why is that? You don't believe they would come for him, his uh, his disciples or his family? or Because Jesus was condemned as an enemy of the state. He was condemned by the Sanhedrin. So why would he be allowed to be buried honorably? 
maybe it was a private ceremony. <laughs> family, <laughs> certain friends. All right, so let's look at these um, hypotheses in detail. Um, we discussed already that Romans often left crucifixion victims on the cross for days or weeks, right? Right. There were exceptions, and one of these exceptions was the Jews. In Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-two to twenty-three, we find this passage: If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Um, this actually was used, I believe, in the first century by Jews to uh, argue against the spread of Christianity. If Jesus was crucified, then he was hung on a tree. If he was hung on a tree, then he's under God's curse. If he's under God's curse, how in the fuck could he be the Messiah? So this right. was a common... Do they consider that a, a literal tree, or is it a cross? As, as long as it's made of wood, is that, is that also... Yes. Okay. Yes, that counts, because Paul specifically argued against this. So this was a common Jewish response. So Romans routinely did bury crucifixion victims in advance of their own holy days, like Saturnalia, for example. They'd take these guys, they'd kill them if they weren't dead, or they'd take the dead bodies down, so it wouldn't interfere with their own celebrations. (laughs) (laughs) Jerusalem was not in open rebellion during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus was not a part of a a mass crucifixion, so uh, you didn't really need a deterrent. Uh, Jesus died right before a Jewish holy day, right? The Passover. Romans would have wanted to keep the peace because Passover, remember what Passover is about, right? This is a highly charged holiday. This was a celebration of the Jews overthrowing of Egypt and and escape from the uh, bonds of their oppressing overlords. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which totally happened. (laughs) So, (laughs) defiling the land by keeping criminals on the cross in contravention of their holy laws uh, might have inflamed anti-Roman passions, right? <laughs> and there's a huge influx of Jews all over the uh, diaspora, the Jews coming in to celebrate uh, Passover in Jerusalem. Uh, so it seems unlikely the Romans would not have um, uh, consented to the Jewish plea to take all the crucifixion victims down in advance of their holy day, Passover, in accordance with their beliefs. And remember, um, the, uh, the Roman Empire did, uh, for the most part, allow local customs, especially if they were very ancient customs. Um, they were very kind of respectful of uh, local religious belief. Yeah, now when did that change, when they stopped being <laughs> respectful of other beliefs? Uh, when the Roman Empire was overtaken by Christianity. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Christians! <laughs> Fucking Christian. Christianity poisons everything. Uh, so, hypothesis number two, dishonorable burial. It seems to me uh, the highest probability on the face of it. Uh, Jewish law recognized two types of burials. An honorable burial included anointing, wrapping linen strips around the body, placing the body in a family tomb, and then sealing the tomb in mourning. A dishonorable burial for criminals condemned by the Jewish court, which Jesus was, also provided for washing and anointing of the body but it was then buried in a public graveyard reserved by the Jewish court for criminals. So, if that happened, uh, it's possible, for example, that uh, he was dishonorably buried, but relocated. So, according to this hypothesis, the tomb burial was temporary because of the imminent impending Sabbath. Um, and this is, um, this is supported by the Gospels. So, um, 
the body would be temporarily stored in a tomb, but not buried inside of it, and then moved later. So uh, this theory actually better fits the evidence because the Markin story portrays the burial as rushed, right? Jesus dies after only a short time on the cross in Mark fifteen twenty-five to 34. What a um, the, the reference <laughs> to how late Joseph's request is in verse 42, Pilate evincing surprise at the report of Jesus' death, and he requests for verification, so he sends a guard in verses 43 to 45. The time required for that verification... Once he was verified, Joseph would have had to purchase a linen cloth in verse 46, and the fact that Jesus wasn't anointed on Friday, as in verse 16.1. So all this points to Joseph being pressed for time and uh, needing a place to store the body until the ritually required washing and anointing, even if he was uh, dishonorably buried, much less transporting the body to the graveyard of the condemned, which was located outside of the walls of Jerusalem. He had to do all of this before nightfall because once... The sun goes down. That's when the next day starts, right? It's and not the, the next day, right? Right. It's not sunrise. It's sunset. <clears throat> so if Passover starts, the holy day starts at sunset. He's got to do all this shit before sunset. Now remember, according to John twenty verse two, Mary thought the body had been moved. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, "They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him." So that's right there in one of the four gospels. Uh, Joseph would have defiled his own tomb by burying Jesus in it, as opposed to just storing him there for the night, whether he was a secret follower of Jesus or not, because Jesus had been condemned by the Sanhedrin. Uh, the relocation hypothesis requires an empty tomb, by the way. You need an empty tomb for that relocation hypothesis to work. So it, it actually explains naturalistically the empty tomb. Uh, the dishonorable burial hypothesis by itself does not. So if Jesus was taken right to the graveyard of, of the condemned, you don't explain the empty tomb. Uh, so you're left kind of embarrassed as to an explanation for why there was a story of an empty tomb in the first place. But if it was placed there in the first place and then relocated, you've explained the empty tomb. So William Lane Craig, what does he say about that, Matt? Well, he says that this does not explain the fate of the two thieves on the cross next to Jesus. <laughs> and we, <laughs> we were concerned about those two guys. I wanted to know their story. Exactly. We're not told by Mark, though, when they died. So if Pilate's surprise at Jesus' early death is any indication, they probably lived a lot longer. And remember, since they were crucified on Golgotha, having those crucifixion victims living through the holiday of Passover uh, wouldn't have been a terrible thing had they been alive. You just can't let them die and rot, right? right. Golgotha's outside of Jerusalem, so this wouldn't have um, interfered with the celebrations of Passover, so long as they didn't die and curse the land. So um, it may also be objected that Joseph of Arimathea was simply a pious Jew and not a secret follower of Jesus. He would have acted to prevent the, the spread of Christianity, right? He would have come forward and said, hey, hey, wait a second here. <laughs> I moved Jesus' body. Uh, but that presupposes, again, that Christianity is a lot more important than it actually was at the time. Right. Um, he and just all, died. Right? <laughs> it's not a major world religion right now. And there's no way to tell that it would ever be at this point. Also, the first preachings we have are the Pentecost, right? Seven weeks after the death. So uh, when when uh, Gary Habermas or William Lane Craig say, oh, how easy it would have been to just parade Jesus' body around, around uh, <laughs> Jerusalem, uh, as if they would have gone to the graveyard of the condemned, or even the tomb, for example, and brought a tattered skeleton out and said, ha, huh, ha, huh, see the beard? That's Jesus. <laughs> That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus Christ. They could have, like, dried him out, maybe? 
little money modification action? <laughs> Leathery Jesus? No? Uh, yeah, he would have looked exactly the same. <laughs> um, so Craig's case for an honorable burial, right? So Craig says that he was honorably buried, even though all the evidence in the Gospels says that uh, he was condemned and, and deserved a dishonorable burial. Craig argues that Joseph of Arimathea honorably buried Jesus in a tomb, and he gives the following reasons. Number one, Paul's testimony, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, which we talked about earlier, provides evidence of burial by Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, well, provides evidence of a burial, period. Um, just says he was buried and then rose again. This may be true. Uh, he may have been buried, but it doesn't allow us to differentiate between the burial options, right? He could have been honorably buried, dishonorably buried, or relocated. Uh, Paul never mentions an empty tomb, by the way. <laughs> Even though William Lane Craig says he implies one, he never mentions an empty tomb. And again, you know, you're talking about Christianity. It's one of the first things people bring up, right? The empty tomb. You can't explain that. can't explain that. Empty tomb. <laughs> so if this was such a good evidence for resurrection of Jesus as it is today, it would have been as good evidence way back then. So why doesn't Paul mention an empty tomb? Because I'm waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have no answer for that. He just mentions that Jesus was buried. Uh, the, the Greek word that he uses, uh, etaphe, I think it is, it could mean honorable or dishonorable burial. It's, it's neutral. So it doesn't say which, doesn't help us. Craig also argues that Joseph is unlikely to be a Christian invention because he is a member of the Sanhedrin. This may be true for Mark, because Mark never says that he's uh, a secret follower of Jesus, but I think he's explicitly stated as a follower of Jesus later on in the Gospels. Uh, number three, Joseph's uh, laying of the body in his own tomb is probably historical. Uh, this may be true, but again, it's unlikely to be a permanent burial rather than a forced temporary storage, because, you know, the pending Sabbath or the Passover. No other tomb may have been available for jo Joseph at that late time. I mean, if, if you're Joseph and you're seeing that the sun's setting pretty quickly. What are your options here? Right, you just, you just take them to what you got. Stuff them in someone else's tomb? <laughs> <laughs> you double up. <laughs> you toss them in there, not for permanent burial, but for temporary storage. After the Sabbath was over, it'd make no sense for a member of the Sanhedrin to bury a criminal in his own tomb instead of the graveyard of the condemned where the Sanhedrin's verdict should have sent him, Right. Right, but what are you going to do? Go out there and dig a hole? <laughs> right, afterwards. It's late. On the next day, do you just leave him in your own tomb? It, it, it defiles the tomb if you're going to actually keep him there. Then you can't use your own tomb. <laughs> <laughs> can I leave him outside the tomb, behind a bush? I think you can leave him in, in a shaded place, but inside Jerusalem? <laughs> uh, yeah. Number four, Craig says Jesus was buried late on the day of preparation. Um, but again, this favors a rushed temporary storage over an honorable burial because you haven't anointed him yet. You haven't washed him yet. You just stuck him in your tomb. Number five, he states that no other burial tradition exists, not even in Jewish polemic. This is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's, it's kind of an argument from ignorance. And it's false. Besides, there is one other account of burial. I think in one of the apocryphal gospels we have buried under the sands, I think. So Craig argues then that if the burial story is reliable, then the location of Jesus' tomb would have been known. Apparently, everyone would have known it. Uh, this was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So, uh, very easy to find, right? The tomb must have been empty when the disciples began to preach that Jesus was risen. 
otherwise no one would have believed them, as Jewish authorities could have simply pointed to Jesus' occupied tomb as proof against the resurrection. See, there's that bunch of bones in there. It's just Jesus. It's Jesus. Nothing to see. Move along. Oh, wait, that is something to see. <laughs> right. So Acts 2 tells us that Christians began preaching at the Pentecost 50 days after the crucifixion, seven weeks after the crucifixion. No corpse in that environment would have been recognizable after nearly two months. Uh, this is assuming that Jewish authorities would even care about or notice the preaching of a marginal sect whose leader died by crucifixion. That, that is something that did not happen very often back then, Chuck. <laughs> it was a rare event. <laughs> a miraculous event, one might say. I would want to point out um, to William Lane Craig that there's a story about Joseph Smith, um, fundamentalist claim that he made a post-resurrection appearance in 1886. Um, this was to John Taylor as he was on the run from the feds because he was a polygamist and the feds are trying to capture the leader of the Mormon church and make an example of him. And remember that he, uh, he was shot during the martyrdom of Joseph Smith um, himself. John Taylor was saved by that pocket watch i think that's now in the mormon museum uh, the bullet hit the pocket watch that was in a pocket over his heart thus saving his life miraculously amazing god saved him to be prophet of the church later on anyway while he was um uh staying at um i think john woolley's house uh the claim is that joseph smith a resurrected joseph smith appeared to john taylor in 1886 and told him to continue the practice of polygamy. Uh, so, <laughs> that's the best. Isn't that awesome? Uh, that Joseph was just here. He he told me to fuck your sister. <laughs> so, um, I believe all modern polygamous cults, all modern polygamous branches, uh, splinter groups, derive from that single uh, claimed visitation by the resurrected Joseph Smith to John Taylor. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the skeletons of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith were exhumed in 1928 uh, by the RLDS Church, right? The reorganized LDS Church that was uh, splintered off from the Mormons at the death of Joseph Smith. Emma Smith and her son, Joseph Smith III, started that. Did they parade his bones around? <laughs> no, but they took pictures um, oh. of their skeletons and skulls, I believe, um, the uh, skull of Joseph Smith was caved in. He must have fallen when he fell from the window after he got shot in the chest and back and fell from the window on the second story of the Liberty Jail. He must have fallen and struck his face on the ground because his his uh, orbital bones were fractured and they'd kind of fallen in and decayed uh, around the nose. So he must have fractured his upper jaw. Hiram Smith, I believe, his skeleton actually had the um, bullet hole, the exit wound that, that went in uh, about under his eye. I think it came out the top. These are definitely the skeletons and skulls of Joseph and Hiram Smith. Uh, fundamentalists don't believe them. <laughs> <laughs> so even if you were able to parade the body of, of Jesus around and it was instantly recognizable, I can guarantee you they wouldn't have believed them. Right. Come on. When, when facts present themselves... No matter what your long-held, deep core beliefs are, you always give over to the facts. Oh, right. It's been true in Jesus' time as it is now. Right. Facts have always refuted closely held beliefs yeah. every single time. Jesus Christ is so naive. Also, on the uh, relocation hypothesis, the body was stored overnight and then moved when the Sabbath was over, right? The soonest this could have been done uh, was nighttime. 
uh, because for the ancient Jews, each new day began at sundown. So the apostles would not likely have observed the relocation. The Gospels have, uh, I think, Mary seeing Jesus being buried, so she knows where the tomb is, right? But the apostles wouldn't have observed the relocation. So the next day, once the Passover is done, the next day, that's at nighttime. So they can now go and anoint his body under candlelight, and then remove the body and place it in the graveyard of the condemned, as the Sanhedrin would have ordered. The apostles probably wouldn't have uh, observed this relocation, because it's nighttime. <clears throat> and so the final resting place of the body would have been unknown to them. So if they were uh, later informed, it would have been in response to their preaching two months later. And by that time, Jesus' unrecognizable corpse would have been unconvincing to them. Even if it had been recognizable, no way. <laughs> so you can kind of see the story that we're getting at here, right? It's placed and then removed at nighttime. And then the next day, the next sunrise, Mary comes and there's no body. So tomb. <laughs> Craig produces some other arguments, Matt. He's not done. <laughs> oh, I thought he only had ten. Jesus Christ. He's not they always done. do this. They always do this. They're like, I have three reasons. Oh, yeah? And 17 more. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, the empty tomb story is very old, probably dating to within seven years of the crucifixion. I love how they say this. Jesus Christ. He He argues this because Mark does not name the high priest, which must mean that the original story, which is a source material for Mark's account, was set down when Caiaphas was high priest. So it wasn't necessary to name him, but just call him the high priest. Caiaphas was a high priest from 18 to 37 of the Common Era. Only so, Caiaphas gets the high priest designation? He was a high priest when Jesus was crucified, apparently. Okay, so that's all you have to say. So his, his argument is that, well, everyone would have known who the high priest was, and so it wasn't necessary to name him. So that has to put it before 37 CE for the original source of the Markan story. So I see two immediate problems with this. Number one... It may have been written so late that Mark didn't even know the name of the high priest. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, the source itself may have named the high priest, but Mark chose to edit it out. We don't have the source. We don't even know if the source exists. So any speculation or hypothesizing on a possibly non-existent hypothetical source can't be used as evidence to bolster any claim. Are you sure that makes sense? Ridiculous. (laughs) He's just speculating about speculation. Number two, the story is simple and lacks legendary development common in other sources, such as the Gospel of Peter. Right? You remember the Gospel of Peter? Oh, uh, sure I do. Of course you do. Jesus comes out, I think, uh, following the cross itself, which comes out of the fucking tomb. So the cross itself uh, bends out and walks into the tomb and says, Jesus is risen, and Jesus steps out of the tomb, but his head is covered by clouds because he's so fucking tall. I guess I don't know the Gospel of Peter. <laughs> So, that's the Gospel of Peter, probably written in the 2nd century. We only have a fragment of that, because we found it uh, stitched into a book that we found later on um, by some priest who buried himself with a book. So, he's saying uh, that it uh, lacks legendary development like that. But, you know, Mark. there's no dispute that Mark was written in the 1st century. So, of course we expect Mark to have fewer legendary details than something written in the 2nd century. And Mark's empty tomb account narrative only narrates the empty tomb itself, not the resurrection, and not any post-resurrection appearances. There's, uh, I think, uh, a bunch of added verses, like the last 12 verses of Mark, but those are um, nearly universally accepted as uh, later additions. And that, you know, the the resurrection appearances and the post-resurrection appearances, these are all later accounts anyway. 
So that, that's where most of the legendary stuff takes place that he's, that he's saying is legendary. The young man who explains the empty tomb, by the way, in Mark itself, is usually taken to be an angel. <laughs> so that's legendary. Who else would be hanging around the empty tomb? Exactly. Jesus' gay lover, probably. <laughs> The discovery of the tomb by the women would have been embarrassing to the early church because women were not trusted as witnesses, right? Oh, women. Always embarrassing the early church. Um, This is not altogether true. Craig loves to say it, but it's not altogether true. Women were less trusted than men as legal witnesses under Jewish law, yes. But the story, one, does not portray them as legal witnesses. Number two, women were allowed to be legal witnesses under Jewish law when no men were present. So, as the story is written in Mark, no men were present. They would have been accepted as legal witnesses under Jewish law, even if the story portrayed them as legal witnesses, which it doesn't. Josephus cited women as witnesses for his reports of the mass suicide uh, at Masada and the Battle of Gamala. So, remember, I think no adult men survived the mass suicide at Masada, only women and children. Uh, there's evidence of the effectiveness of women's testimony within the Gospels themselves. John 4.39 states, Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So, uh, again, this, this, isn't, this isn't a slam dunk for William Lane Craig in the best of circumstances. We've got no evidence of anti-Christian opponents using the fact that women discovered the empty tomb against early Christians. So wouldn't that have been the first thing uh, the Jews would have said? Well, that was discovered by women, so fuck that. Right. We don't have no any evidence. evidence. We got no evidence of anybody saying that uh, that was a problem early on in Christianity. His his next argument: uh, Jewish polemic presupposed the empty tomb. Craig claims that this is uh, enemy attestation, right? And this is among the most reliable evidence because even the enemies of Jesus presupposed the empty tomb. Uh, so they they say stuff like, for example, in Matthew, you need to place a guard in in front of the uh, tomb because otherwise his disciples will come and steal the body, right? And, and then right. have an empty tomb, and, and this last lie will be worse than the first. So um, how does Craig know that any of these Jews had personal knowledge of an empty tomb? Isn't it more likely that they merely granted the premise and then showed that it didn't necessarily lead to the Christian conclusion? So if they're arguing, for example, that they accept the empty tomb and say, even if we accept the empty tomb, uh, it still could have been that the disciples stole the body. Right? Isn't it more likely right. that, that they say stuff like that than travel all the way to Jerusalem, peek into the empty tomb itself, and say, damn, you're right. All right, well, then in that case, <laughs> <laughs> Craig doesn't know that. And if he doesn't, then it doesn't provide enemy attestation. Uh, it could be just a, a logical, the, the most common logical argument that they'd take. I accept your premise. I, I deny your conclusion. Number five, uh, Craig says that Jesus' tomb was not venerated as a shrine. And he says the reason the tomb was not venerated was because it was empty, that there were no bones to venerate. Uh, Jerusalem was sacked in the year 70. <laughs> so we don't know if Jesus' tomb was venerated or not. All the records were gone. And we would also expect lack of veneration if Jesus was buried in a criminal graveyard, as veneration would be politically dangerous. You know, you don't go to the graveyard of the condemned and uh, show your support for Jesus. <laughs> You're going to get crucified yourself. So again, uh, his premise... Uh, doesn't lead to his conclusions. All right, that's probably a good place to um, stop. Uh, we're going to continue in the next episode, I think. In the next episode, we review Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a break right now for Dr. Chuck's Medical Corner. Let's do that. Um, a new feature on the show, Matt. All right, new feature. Do we have music for it? Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll find some. Uh, in the future, I'm going to uh, take medical questions from uh, our audience of three to four listeners. Uh, but but for right now, let's talk about the uh, medical aspects of crucifixion. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so in ancient times, um, they they would flog a person first, but it wouldn't be a normal flogging. It would uh, they'd tie little bits of stone or metal or uh, maybe obsidian, and they they'd flog them with this. So it would tear their skin and increase the bleeding. Oh God. Uh, now, now they they did this as as part of a deterrent, but also I think it was kind of um, <clears throat> as a a way to shorten their uh, suffering on the cross. You end up losing a lot of blood to to lessen the time uh, alive while hanging. Yeah, um, I think it was a, a merciful thing. They they would actually cause blood loss, uh, which would hasten your demise on the cross. Good God, I would be. That's the deterrent for me. I'd be the most law-abiding motherfucker in ancient <laughs> Rome ever. So then uh, they would make you carry the cross out to your place of execution. And in some of the Gospels, Jesus couldn't do this, right? He, he faltered a bunch of times, and, and someone else uh, took the cross for him. Uh, did you ever? Was it the meaning of life or the life of Brian where some guy <laughs> fell down and uh, this kind man took up his cross and then the guy... Ran off. <laughs> my friend Brian, let me shoulder your burden, my brother. Oh, thanks. <laughs> He's, no, it's, I was just carrying it for him. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, then they would uh, lay you down on the crossbeam and nail your. Well, they'd either they'd either nail your wrist in between the radius and the ulna. They couldn't nail it in your hand, you know. You see Mormon versions of uh, Jesus. He always has a uh, print in his palm. Right. If you know anything about anatomy, that thing would rip right out. Uh, you don't have the the wrist bones themselves. Probably secure it between the radius and the ulna would be good. But inside the hand, all you have are, are metacarpals that go straight into the fingers. So you put it in the palm, it's going to rip straight out. So they didn't do that. Um, they'd either nail it in the wrist or they'd rope you to the cross. You know, sometimes they wanted to save some nails. <laughs> if um, Typically what they would do, and we have one bone, one skeleton of a, of a crucified person. Uh, I think we may only have the heel. They would put you uh, to the side of the post after they lifted you up. And they would uh, drive a nail through your calcaneus, through the bone of your heel, into the wood of the cross. And that would fix you in place. That was for the purpose, actually, of allowing you to prolong your suffering uh, by standing up on that nail, allowing your, your rib cage to breathe in. If you just hang by the cross, your diaphragm uh, gets to the point where it cannot lower anymore, and your rib cage kind of sinks down, and you can't take a deep breath. So you have to stand up on that nail, take a deep breath, and then slump that back down again. Most crucifixion victims uh, actually didn't die from blood loss. They died from suffocation. So you're saying they, they turn the, the lower body and nail it to the front of the cross, or they pull it to the side and nail it to the side of the cross? They would pull it to the side. So what, what happened was we found this heel bone. It was actually uh, the nail was driven into the wood and hit a knot and bent the nail, and so they couldn't get the uh, the wood back out. So we actually, I think, have the guy's heel with the uh, bent piece of uh, nail in there. So it, it was driven through the side of the calcaneus. So your leg would go through uh, either side of the post, and it would get nailed to each side. Um, alternatively, I think they may have um, 
put a, a wooden stand there on the post where your feet would go, cross the feet over, and then drive the nail in between the middle of the feet. Um, but we don't have any evidence for that other than, I think, pictorial, you know, paintings or something. So that that, right. that may be uh, hypothetical. The There's only evidence... Jesus Christ pose. Right. The only evidence we have is for uh, the heel on the side. And so uh, probably, you know, and the, the question is, why did Jesus die so quickly? Um, it, it may have been suffocation. He may, he may just have been uh, a wimp. Jesus could have been a wuss. Yeah. Was the pussy? Didn't they also <laughs> stab him in the side for some reason? Uh, yeah. Now here's the, the other hypothesis: is that um, during his flogging, or perhaps when he fell down carrying his cross, uh, his heart bruised up against the sternum, his, his chest plate, and he had what's called a, a cardiac contusion. If you rupture an artery there, you end up filling blood in between the pericardium, so the sac, the sac that lines the heart. So if you burst one of the arteries, uh, the blood's going to keep pumping and it's going to compress the heart until it can't pump anymore. So he could have had a, um, that's called a cardiac tamponade. So he could have had a um, pericardial contusion. And when he's put up in the cross, his heart's filling up with blood. And then he just couldn't pump anymore. So it didn't matter if he could stand or, or slump, uh, he would have died fairly quickly. Uh, the, the evidence for that is in the Gospels. You know, they say that they poked him aside and blood and water rushed out. So that would have been the um, effusion, the inflammatory fluid, as well as the blood. So that's possible, too. But again, again, these Gospels are written so long after that it's hard to use any of these as uh, direct evidence. Yeah. So there you have it, Dr. Chuck's Medical Corner, the truth about crucifixion. Hey, we learned all about it. <laughs> so <laughs> next week... Now you can try it at home. <laughs> Do not try it at home. <laughs> In two weeks, we're going to uh, continue our discussion about the crucifixion, resurrection, and empty tomb of Jesus, covering such things as burial of Jesus in light of Jewish law, uh, Roman-Jewish relations, graveyard of the Sassy. condemned, and what probably Sassy. happened. Uh, we'll see you again in two weeks. See you then. Vagina. <laughs> <laughs> you can cut that out if you want. <laughs> Excellent.